my women in line. Yes, I'm going back to Tulsa. Hello there, and welcome to Say Brother Radio. You are now with Carmen Fields and Barbara Barrow Murray. I will talk to you about Carmen, um, but first let me talk to you about Say Brother Radio. As a television and radio broadcast series produced at Boston Neighborhood Network, which is in Roxbury, which is a neighborhood in Boston. Today's program is targeted specifically to baby boomers and those who preceded us, which was called the silent generation or the transitional, transitionalist generation, those born before us. Uh, however, it's really for anybody that loves music. If you love music and you're an impresario or you're just a student of music, you're going to love this show. It's really going to be a treat. Not only is my guest, Common Fields, a Say Brother radio guest, but she is a renowned Emmy Award-winning journalist, news anchor, and both a print and broadcast reporter. Among many other achievements for over the past 30 years, she co-anchored WGBH's 10 o'clock news with my dear friend, Chris Lydon, and she is now, uh, and has been for a while, the producer of Higher Ground, which is a public affairs show um, at WHDA Channel 7, an NBC-affiliated station in Boston. To add to her many credits and achievements, Carmen is now a celebrated author of Going Back to T-Town, the Ernie Fields Territory Big Band, a wonderful story about her father, the big band leader, Ernie Fields, and last of all, I want to welcome my dear friend and colleague, Common Fields, to the Say Brother Radio. Common, welcome to Say Brother Radio. Hello, Barbara. It's my pleasure. It's so good to see you and be with you. It's been too long. My dear friend and colleague, haven't seen you for many, many years. And, it and was you know, wonderful. I was remembering you gave me my first break in television, however many years ago that was with Say Brother News, that pilot at WGBH. You know, I was trying to remember, I was like, did I make that up or is that really true? That's really true. I'm trying to remember, I was trying to remember all the different reporters who are currently on the air or have been on the air that we gave an opportunity to. And I said, was Carmen in that mix? Maybe Yes, so. I, I was in that mix with Tanya Hart and Jimmy Rowe and... Okay. Those are the ones that come immediately to mind. Yes. That's wonderful. Well, I'm glad to see you again. I think I saw you at Boston Neighborhood Network uh, a few years ago, doing mm -hmm. something for Curtis Henderson. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to congratulate you for your book, Going Back to T-Town. I read it. I loved it. I read a piece every night. That's how much I enjoyed it. I look forward to reading that book before I went to sleep every night. Beautiful piece of work. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Can I, can I ask you about the dedication? The dedication is to your dad and to your brother. The dad who's gone, uh, your brother, and then you said the journeymen and musicians uh, and vocalists who are known and not so known, famous and, and not so known. So what made you do that piece of the dedication, the journeyman piece? Well, uh, as you have uh, seen through the book, my father kept reminding me 
as many of the names as he mentioned, he's probably forgotten many more. And he urged me to please mention as many of the people who had journeyed through his organization as possible because uh, they must have been worth something or he would not have had them in his band. And when I started doing the research of some of the names, you know, the name, the list went from a few dozen to over a hundred names. Some of them who achieved some modicum of fame in their own right and others that just simply disappeared. They had been musicians, but then they became bus drivers or preachers or, or mm -hmm. other things or just um, disappeared from uh, the ionosphere. Uh, so I wanted to dedicate the book to them in honor of my father because that was his wish that not only he be honored, but those he had been associated with be recognized as well. Yes, yes. And I, you know, one of the things that I insist upon in this business is that entertainment business is that we give credit where credit is due. And so many people are overlooked. And I got to the back of the book and it had the roll call and have so many, so many musicians that just did my heart well. I mean, to see that your dad was thinking like that and you guys got that together and gave those people their credit. I thought that was really to be commending. That's really good, good, something really good that came out of that. Okay, so you, uh, let's talk about the book signing. You're going to have a book signing soon. Tell them about that so they can get to that. Let's get that out the way. Uh, on September 19th at 7 p.m. from 7 to 8.30, I will be at the Berkeley College of Music. Burke Hall is the name of I will be at Burke Hall. It's on Boylston Street. I don't recall the exact number. Uh, room 1A for a conversation with the head of Africana Studies at Berkeley College of Music. Uh, we'll have a conversation, we'll have a few excerpts of some of the music, and then books will be available for sale and for signing, Q&A from the audience, uh, and we're I'm looking forward to a grand old time. And what time did you say it's going to be? From 7 to 8.30 on September 19th. I believe that's a Tuesday okay. evening. September 19th, uh, 7 to 8.30. Uh, mm -hmm. Okay, and you'll have books there for those who don't have them already, right? Correct. Yes, indeed. Okay, that, that's fantastic. Okay, so you talked about so many exciting things. Tell us exactly the years that you covered for this book. Uh, I covered the beginning of my father's career, music career, which, which was the late 1920s. Okay. And it goes through to his largest musical uh, success, which was uh, his recording of Glenn Miller's In the Mood in 1959. And that went on to top some of the billboard and cash box charts. So the arc of the story is from his discovery and his biggest musical triumph and what was happening in between. Uh, the different ballrooms and theaters that he performed in, uh, the pluses and minuses of being on the road, uh, the good times and, and the hard times. So it uh, goes from the 20s to the early Late 20s 60s. until the 30s, uh, because uh, the, 
1928, he, uh, he was excited to be invited, his organizations to be the band for the coming out or debutante party for Joan Skelly, who was a daughter of uh, one of the uh, owners of Skelly Oil Company. And the Tulsa Club was a, a segregated club, but he was the first African-American organization to perform at the Tulsa Club. And based on that uh, debutante party, he was invited back to have longer stays at the Tulsa Club. And that led to uh, others hearing about it in other parts of the region and parts of the country. And in some of the ads that I found, they would mention uh, just back from two weeks at the uh, with his all colored review at the Tulsa Club. So that was a big deal in 2829 right. uh, like that. Let, yeah. Let me ask you about John Hammond. I I read that he was a big time talent scout at that time. How important was he to Ernie Fields big band? He was very important uh, as he was important to Count Basie, uh, Bruce Springsteen, Janis Joplin. He was a talent scout an entrepreneur and uh, discovered many uh, musicians, many talents across many eras. Mm -hmm. And after he had discovered Count Basie, he was uh, scouting around in the Kansas City area and uh, asking around on you know, what was happening. And somebody asked him, had he heard of Ernie Fields? And he hadn't, and he said, well, uh, he's, he's out of Tulsa. And so John Hammond decided to go to Tulsa uh, to look up Ernie Fields. And uh, one of the stories I, I have in the book was he, he goes into this uh, club and asks the black waiter if he knows how to get in touch with Ernie Fields. And he says, yes, he has a telephone. And he said, well, uh, call and uh, ask, let me speak to him. And so the waiter called and my father was out of town uh, on a gig. And so he goes back and tells John Hammond he's out of town. Uh, his wife says he'll be back tomorrow. So uh, he says, uh, well, give him my number. I'm at the Mayo Hotel, tell him where I am and give him the number and have him call me in the morning. And so the waiter dutifully does that, replies, and then when he goes back, the, John Hammond gives him a $5 bill. And the waiter says, I don't have change. And he says, that's all right, it's yours. So the waiter goes back and calls my mother and says, Miss Fields, I'm sorry to keep bothering you, but you tell Ernie to call this man. He must be awful important because he gave me a $5 tip for a nickel phone call. <laughs> and the rest is history. They did connect. He heard the group, was impressed, wanted to bring uh, the big band, the person who headed big band division for uh, the management company, Willard Alexander, uh, to They met him a few months later in Wichita and signed them and brought them to New York City in 1939. Okay. So like you said, the rest is hip history. He was a really important talent scout. So he was tell very me, important, yes. What, where did the title T-Town come from? What, what does that mean? Where that stands for Tulsa, Oklahoma. Tulsa, Tulsa Oklahoma. Which is where my father always returned to. That was home base. 
And the lyric of that song, T-Town Blues, the very first lyric is, I'm going back to T-Town. Absolutely. And so that was one of his uh, modest, his first recordings and a modest hit of the day. And so it really captured to me the spirit of him as far as he went in, in uh, Canada, far west, east coast. He always came back to T-Town. Right. Okay. I, I absolutely love that song. I really do. Um, now, I want you to explain to me the depth of of the joy that you got from writing this book and working with your dad to write this book. Well, when I was in the 1980s, I think the mid 80s, when I uh, started thinking about it and mentioned it to him and to my surprise and delight, he embraced the idea uh, wholeheartedly. And, you know, what can I tell you? Because I've been hearing these stories all my life. And as they say, yeah. youth, youth is wasted on the young. Half the time, yeah. I wasn't yeah. really paying any attention of until I got, got good and grown. But uh, one of our first orders of business, he had piles and piles of photographs. And I said, you have to put the names of who these people are on these photographs so that I can help tell their stories. And I also taught him how to record himself when I was not there in coming from Boston. So he, as things occurred to him, he could have the recordings and I could go from there. So that's how it started. And so the joy that he brought to you must have been unbelievable. Especially when I started replaying those recordings that and hearing his voice mm -hmm. and his reflections and his way with words uh that especially after he was gone that was particularly gratifying of keeping me close and hearing his voice i know that was really really special i have one tape recording of my mom singing and hearing her voice does so much joy to me and she's been gone for like more than 20 years Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. so I do understand that that must have been incredible. So um, I want to talk to you about I want to talk to you about chapter five on the road for better or worse. You wrote that from 1920s to the 1950s was called the Negro Holocaust. Why did you say that? Define that for me. That, because that was a dangerous time to be black in America. Uh, that was the height of the lynching season. And of course, everybody recognizes the name of Emmett Till, but there were others long before Emmett Till and long after Emmett Till that were uh, victims of racist violence for uh, the most minor of infractions. You could be walking on the wrong side of the street. You could be in a, a town where you didn't know the local customs. Uh, and as I put in the book, you could, uh, smiling too much or too little could be a decision of life and death. Uh, it was just a, a precarious time to be traveling on a bus with all these Black musicians going from place to place to play their horns and entertain crowds. And it was entertaining white audiences as well as Black audiences. 
but you never knew when you would be able to buy food. You never knew if uh, if you stopped for gasoline or to get service, a break job or anything, whether they let you use the restrooms. Um, uh, it was uh, precarious on where you were going to sleep. And this was before the Green Book was invented. <laughs> so, oh, really? Um, they had no yeah, yeah, they were they were on they were on their own, um, and uh, it was that was what the Negro Holocaust meant in those days. Okay, so we're gonna be right back. This is a really interesting conversation, but we'll be right back. Thank you. Okay, we're back to Say Brother Radio with our guest, Common Fields, author of Going Back to T-Town. Uh, she's been telling us a wonderful story, a condensed version of the book. And if you look over her shoulder, you'll see the, the book cover, but she has it inverted. We talked about this like for five minutes before the show started. Going Back to T-Town is what it says, the Ernie Fields Territory Big Band. Uh, what, let me... Let me ask you, what do you mean when you say territory, big band? Why did you say it like that? Well, because that era spawned countless bands that were called or known as territory bands or territory big bands because they primarily operated in a specific geographic area. And my father's territory typically was Tulsa, Oklahoma City, uh, Kansas City, uh, Texas, Dallas, Texas, uh, Houston, Galveston, uh, Arkansas. And that was uh, the general vicinity where he most often performed. But unlike some other territory bands, he was able to also travel far west, Los Angeles. Uh, open the club, Alabama, uh, Portland, Oregon, uh, Seattle, Washington. Uh, in the book, there's a portrait of him taken at a studio in Pocatello, Idaho. Uh, so his territory, he considered his territory the entire country, but there were other bands that primarily operated only in their territory. And many of them had quite a name for themselves. One that comes to mind is Alphonsus Trent, who was in Texas and he was the first black band to have a long standing engagement at the major hotel 
in Dallas and have a radio broadcast. He was at the same hotel for a number of years, and that was unheard of at the time uh, in his day. Uh, so there were other territories out of Florida, Georgia, and around. Those had uh, territory, Denver and Chicago. Let me ask you something about Texas. Uh, mm -hmm. If I read, if I remember this correctly, you talked about uh, Gladwater and Longview, Texas, where they they did a show uh, for a venue, and it was raining and muddy that time, and a lot of the patrons couldn't get there. Therefore, the owner decided he wasn't going to pay Ernie Fields and his band. Okay. And that's like, oh my God, I, you know, I can't even imagine that. Plus that he had to borrow some money from his brother to even get there in the first place. To get place. there, yes. You know, so yeah. I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm getting really anxious as I'm reading this. You guys got to read this book. And uh, so... <laughs> so it, it, That particular incident had uh, a happy ending. Uh, the uh, promoter did make good uh, on the month, but you know, it was... It was not always... Happen. That didn't happen that often. He was, okay. and he considered himself blessed in that uh, yeah. in that sense. Situation. That, uh, yeah. Not yeah, not not always uh, did he run into unscrupulous uh, promoters. Right. Right. Uh, but uh, you still were at the will yeah. of the promoters or uh, whomever the owners of the clubs on um, whether you would get what. Uh, what you were promised and what was what was coming you your way yeah that that uh gave me some anxious moments reading that but i um i was happy to see that the promoter <laughs> made good on on the actual event um i want to talk to you about a gift that you and your brother ernie jr ernie fields jr gave a photo of a black vocalist estelle edison um of the 1940s to the Smithsonian National Museum of African-American History and Culture um, from your dad's estate, from the Ernie Fields Senior Estate. That is an incredible gift. I wanna personally thank you for the black community for giving that, sharing well, that. We um, we put together both, uh, uh, both, after my father died, my brother had piles of photographs and flyers and contracts and things and I had piles of it uh, and a lot of it was stored because uh, uh, my mother survived and we had still had a storage area and uh, when she passed away we were going through these things and it's like what to do with it it's precious to us but we don't know if it would be respected by anyone else so you may remember Beverly Morgan Welch, uh, who used to be the head I of the do. Museum of African-American yeah. History do. in Boston. By this time, she was at the Smithsonian. Oh. And she put me in touch with the music curator for the Smithsonian. Mm -hmm. uh, my brother's assistant assembled all of these photographs and flyers and materials. And the, uh, the curator came from Washington, D.C. to my brother's office in Los Angeles and looked at the pictures and the photographs page by page and said, this is something we would like to have. And so nice. we we packed those things up 
and sent them along with as many as we could identify, uh, sent them to the Smithsonian. And it was important to us because we knew that was the appropriate repository to preserve the materials and they will make them available to the public and to scholars. If you want a copy of that Estelle Edson photograph or some of the other photographs of Ernie Fields or the orchestra or what have you, they'll take care of you. That's good to know. So that's open to the public to do that. Yes, indeed. Yes, okay. indeed. That's wonderful. So viewers, you, viewers and listeners, listen to what she said. The Smithsonian National Museum of African-American History and Culture write to them and they will make available whatever pictures you see mm -hmm. in that book to decide on what you'd like to get. And some of them, they've begun posting online, not all of them, but some mm -hmm. of the, uh, uh, the uh, photographs they have posted online because the book just has, oh, I don't know, 16 or 17 photographs, but we donated, you know, uh, uh, 50 or 60 photographs Simon. and flyers and things. Simon, believe it or not, we got two minutes left. Wow. So I, I want you to take the one minute. I'm going to take the last minute. Okay. okay. Go. Well, uh, after traveling for years and years, 20, 30, 40 years, he was finally, quote unquote, discovered by the rock and roll generation, the generation of Elvis Presley and Little Richard. And he recorded a rock and roll version of an old Glenn Miller tune that had been popular in the 40s called In the Mood. And that went high on the cash box and billboard charts. It led to appearances on Dick Clark's American Bandstand and uh, re-energized his career, which he had begun to scale down from 17 and 18 pieces to six and eight pieces. Uh, and he, from the rest of his life became known as Mr. In the Mood. Okay, so thank you. So th Carmen, thank you for sharing your dad's story. Uh, it's a beautiful gift to the world. I really uh, personally appreciate it. And professionally, it's a gift for all of us. I wanna thank you again, September 19th, if you can, Berkeley School of Music, the in that company and I'm sure you'll enjoy yourself. Thanks, Thank Carmen. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you. Okay, you're welcome. And I look forward to seeing you in person soon. As okay. Well. Thank you and good night.